0: Good to have you all here tonight. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Basic Doctrinal Studies, although it's got a different title. Uh, this is called uh, Foundation, what's it called? A Biblical Foundation for the Christian Life. All right. Thank you, sir. It's the title Dan Craw gave this class uh, several months back, and uh, he taught the first few lessons in it anyway, and then I've been pleased to, to take it over. Appreciate uh, being able to teach basics again. It's been a number of years, but I enjoy it every time, and I trust that it's a blessing for each one of us as we uh, as we go through these things. We're in the part now where we're studying the will of God, we're studying the plan of God, Bulology, the overall plan of God from Alpha to Omega. We realize it's not about us, it's about Jesus Christ, and that's what we want to center on here tonight. Uh, We've talked about the creative ages, uh, the eternal life conference before the foundation of the world. Last week we were talking about the angelic earth, and uh, this week we're going to move on through the dispensation of Gentiles, to the dispensation of Israel, and on into the church age, uh, should we get so far. Before we begin tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask the Father to bless our time of study, to set aside distractions, to humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness, and we thank you tonight for the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, I thank you for these evening sessions and the blessings to, uh, to study and, and to explore these matters, uh, to take questions and be a little bit more informal. Uh, Father, I do thank you for these blessings, and we call upon your faithfulness now tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us the, the big picture, Father. And I thank you that we are your children, that we are your friends, that you call upon us uh, And explain what you're doing and why, Father. This is uh, indeed a privilege, as Jesus spoke to His disciples. um, The slave is not entitled to know uh, all the things that we're entitled to know, and I thank you for that, and I rejoice in this grace provision. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, Amen. All right, well. Picking up where we left off then and talking about the Gentiles. And and hopefully, I've got some other charts as well that uh, I prepped last week. I don't know that I brought them up this week or not, but we can uh, certainly do that. The plan of the ages. This is the chart that I like to use. because it's in the back of our Plan of God reader. And it kind of gives a a nice picture from the Alpha to the Omega, showing the angels first before Adam and their, their rebellion and their fall, followed then by what's called there the dispensation of man, in blue, followed by Israel with the call of Abraham. And and these are pretty simple divisions as far as that goes, all right? And wherever you date Adam and Eve, I know the, the traditional usher date of 4004 BC, I think the Septuagint dating is, has uh, a lot to commend itself. So I go back to 5700 uh, uh, BC for, uh, for Adam in any event. Um, as, as you work your way through this, you get to Abraham in about 1,000 B.C. or 2,000 B.C., all right? And so with Abraham to Christ, you've got that stewardship of Israel, and that's what we're talking about in just in, in, in round numbers, all right? So from Adam to Abraham, from, call it 5,800 BC to to 2,000 BC, uh, you know, roughly 4,000 years there is what we're dealing with in uh, in the dispensation of man. And what's maybe most extraordinary of all, so that's not to scale, is what I'm I'm trying to say, that's not to scale, because, you know, we're talking 6,000 years um, related to that. And and there was no scripture, because we don't start getting scripture, written scripture, until Moses. We don't start getting written scripture until we're already 400 years into, into uh, Israel's stewardship. So from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the patriarchs all through Egypt, there's no scriptures until Moses. And that's, uh, that's uh, I think that's vital. And if we lose track of that, then uh, uh, we're going to run into some trouble, all right? Because we want to know more about the age of Gentiles than we possibly can. It's not recorded in the scriptures. And so within the framework of what is recorded in the scriptures, we can glean uh, little glimpses here and there, we can pick up on some some principles, but um, we have to admit that there's more questions than answers at this point because of the the lack of information that's there. I like to break down the age of man, or the dispensation of man, into the age of innocence, the age of conscience, and the age of human government. And these are the foundational ages that are given on all the first 11 chapters of Genesis, by the way. I mean, not only is this uh, not to scale, our Bible's not to scale. We get get all of the Gentile history in, in the first 11 chapters, and then we have the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So um, innocence, obviously, is in the Garden of Eden before the fall, conscience after the fall, as as we understand it, as as the conscience being the operational principle within all of mankind, Um, even fallen mankind still has an operational conscience, we get that. And then human government, after the flood, uh, with the uh, institution of uh, the laws of divine establishment, including marriage, family, and nationalism... The, the global rebellion that took place then that was then judged, not with a second flood, but was judged with the Tower of Babel, with a dispersion of the nations. Uh, those, those things are all important for us. So we'll talk about them tonight as it relates to, uh, to these passages. Uh, the dispensation of man, or commonly, according to Schofield, called the dispensation of Gentiles, encountered great angelic conflict. Even though the angels are no longer stewards and now they're assigned to invisible realms, they still intrude, the fallen angels do, uh, for temptation, for snares, for other uh, aspects on that. The fall of Adam and Eve was prompted by satanic temptation. And when you look at Genesis 3, it's clear. He is a fallen creature already. And so for folks that want to dispute that or want to try to find some other explanation for Genesis, um, they're reading into the text a a, a whole lot of assumptions, and I try to avoid that. I want to read out of the text. That's exegesis. I don't want to read into the text in in eisegesis related to anything. So we understand that there. Then you go to the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And, and what else do we have? Again, it's angelic intrusion. The, uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And, uh, and I realize it's no longer popular, and I realize that uh, most uh, seminaries anymore are, are, are removing as many angels as they can out of the Bible. They no longer teach Genesis 6 as an angelic intrusion into the human race. They no longer teach the Nephilim as, as hybrids of, of fallen angels and human women, as I think the, the plain language of Scripture indicates, as the early church fathers understood it, as all the rabbis understood it, all of the the uh, Midrash and all of the uh, the traditions going back to the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Old Testament— all understood this as angelic intrusion. See, even, even mythology, Greek mythology, other mythology uh, accepts the gods and the, the, the demigods and all the, the, uh, the things there. It's, it's really only the, the postmodern uh, liberal scholarship of, of our day and age that started to backtrack on that and tries to find naturalistic explanations for uh, what's clearly supernatural. <laughs> In any event, um, these are spectacular children, and uh, the offspring of uh, of these unions are uh, mighty and uh, giants, gigantes, they're called in the Septuagint, and uh, the giants of uh, of old. But it's an angelic attack, and and really, these these disconnected stories from the flood, uh, from the fall to the flood to the Tower of Babel. It's hard to find a theme that will explain them all if you separate angelic conflict out from Scripture. If you insist on a a purely human reading of of these passages and and insist on ignoring all things angelic, you're going to struggle to to find the common threads that uh, that lead up to the Abrahamic covenant. Um, The Empire of Nimrod, described in Genesis 10. Fixed Babel as the apex of rebellion against God, and so when you see the founding of Babel, when you see the empire of Nimrod, I find it interesting. When God, after the flood, when God pronounces blessings upon Shem and blessings upon Japheth and a curse upon Ham, I find it interesting that the first thing Satan does is he lifts up a, a Hamitic tyrant like Nimrod and uh, sends him out then to subjugate the Semitic peoples and uh, so forth. Anyway. Um, explain that without angelic conflict, (laughs) all right? Uh, So many of these things uh, become much more understandable when we see the conflict involved. That is, um, our adversary, the devil, who is completely dedicated to attacking everything God reveals in his word. And so um, as we work our way through from Genesis to Revelation, as we try to get a bigger picture on things, I think... um, are we familiar with the concept of, of uh, n- uh, progressive revelation? More and more gets explained, more and more gets unfolded, more and more gets built on what was previously uh, unfolded. Well, along with that should come progressive satanic attack, <laughs> all right, as Satan adjusts his tactics to incorporate that new information, that new data that he has to incorporate in his, in his hatred for God and uh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, the empire of Nimrod fixed Babylon, or Babel as it's called here in Genesis, as the apex of rebellion against God. And uh, no uh, coincidence, of course, that we have Babylon that's mentioned more than any other city after Jerusalem in the scriptures. Babylon is is mentioned the most number of times outside of Jerusalem. So when you're reading in Isaiah 13 or you're reading in Isaiah 14, two complete chapters in Isaiah that are dealing with uh, God's judgment upon Babylon. And it's bigger than just Nebuchadnezzar's day. It's bigger than what we call today the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It it spans everything from Nimrod to Antichrist and uh, the overall judgment of God upon Satan. Likewise, Revelation 17 Revelation 18, you've got Babylon that's mentioned in both those chapters. Religious Babylon in chapter 17 and commercial Babylon in chapter 18. And so, really... um, all these studies in Genesis become huge. They become much bigger than than you know children's stories or Bible stories. They they, they introduce themes that are carried through all the way through Scripture and have their their uh, conclusion uh, in Revelation, as we understand it there. All right, is there more to study? Of course, but the information is is not as comprehensive as we might like because there are no uh, Gentile prophets who wrote. Gentile scriptures. As I say, there's no written scriptures until, until uh, Moses. Questions. Do we have questions tonight related to, is microphone ready? Related to uh, the Gentiles or right? anything at all between Adam and Abraham. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of time, okay? Especially if you like the Septuagint dating as I do and you push it back to, you know, 5700 or 5800 BC. Okay, question right here. Thank you, Chris. I want to go back to Genesis 6, 4, where it says they're mighty men. Is the term mighty men a war term, or is it in what context were they mighty? Normally speaking, unless there's other expressions to modify it, the Gabor HaChail are the mighty men of valor, and it is in a military sense. Um, unless there's other reasons why Uh, occasionally there will be terms uh, financial terms attached and then you know he's a mighty wealthy guy okay or it's used and actually the same terminology is used in the feminine gender for the woman of excellence in uh, in Proverbs 31 and so that's pretty cool Uh, that that kind of shows an equivalent value of women in the in in their realms of application in their godliness, uh, they don't try to turn into you know Rambo uh, you know GI Jane super warrior you know feminist uh, champion. Their realm is the Proverbs thirty one realm, but it uses the same vocabulary of, of the Gabor haChayil, just the feminine version of that. The woman, the Esheth haChayil, the woman of excellence, is featured there. These are mighty men in terms of soldiers, and uh, it's key. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward that is one of the most important expressions right there in english or hebrew or whatever you're looking at in those days and also afterward because anything that was on earth in those days died in the flood right and only noah his wife their three sons their three wives there's eight souls that survived the the flood and they survived on board the ark so for these guys however you want to handle the nephilim Okay? and You can handle it in good ways, you can handle it in, in bad ways, but however you handle it, to be fair to the text, you've got to explain how they could have been on the earth in those days and also afterward. All right. I think the best way to explain that is the way the verse explains it, because it says, when the B'nei Elohim, the sons of God, came into the daughters of men, when angelic uh, procreation with human females takes place, a Nephilim is produced. See, it's a hybrid. And uh, that's the plain language of the text and and so uh, and, and so it becomes an explanation then for how Nephilim can be on the earth before the flood, and how Nephilim can show up again after the flood, because you have more fallen angels, you have more pregnant women, you have more uh, giant babies and, and in the in the Old Testament, we have it. We have giants uh, in the land that that, Cain, uh, that uh, Caleb and Joshua have to deal with in the conquest of the land there were giants. And then even into King David's time, you've got Goliath and his, his brothers or his sons. Uh, you've got giants in the land there too. So uh, related to how they could be on the earth in those days and also afterward, to me, um, failing an angelic explanation just causes more problems than it solves. And I, and I think that's it. I think the people that are resisting all things angelic are trying to simplify matters. And sadly, I think they make it worse. I think they complicate matters because then you end up trying to find explanations here for things that uh, otherwise would be simple. All right, uh, bring the microphone up here, please, Mr. Dad. Is that the same vocabulary used for Boaz, uh, mighty man of wealth? Yes, same vocabulary used for Boaz. But because the wealth is attached to it, we take him more as a as a, a businessman rather than a warrior, but he may have also been a warrior as well. Well, that's uh, some commentators said that could have referred to both. Uh, could have been. He, he, he could have been both mm-hmm. wealthy and a warrior. Could have been, yeah. But with the attachment of that wealth, I think it indicates that certainly. All right, so we have the Gentiles, and during this time, there were prophets. Okay. Noah was a prophet, because we see his prophecies recorded in Genesis. We see uh, other prophetic utterances that are given. And actually, all the way back to the book of Jude. The book of Jude references Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam and the prophecies that he made, all right? And uh, amazingly enough... um, it's not in uh, the none of the gentile writings survived if they had any writings none of the gentile writings were added to the scripture like i say the first written scripture was moses uh, as uh you know the 15th century bc as we understand it so uh jude 14 is it Yes, Jude 14. It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. And so there's a prophecy that took place in the seventh generation from Adam. But there were no written scriptures at that time, no written scriptures prior to Moses. Um, So the scant information we have comes from the little glimpses we have, and then I would also add to that the book of Job. I think the book of Job written most likely by Moses, written uh, in Hebrew, written in, as a part of the Hebrew canon, but it details events like Babel, it details events in the centuries shortly after the flood. So I typically I will place it two generations pre-Abraham based on the lifespan involved, based upon Job's lifespan in that book. So um, little glimpses there that we have of, of angels, conflict, and uh, aspects there. All right, but then we get to Genesis 12, and as we get to Genesis 12, the uh, the breaks are applied, all right? How is it that you can have 11 chapters that spans 6,000 years, 8,000 years, all right? Well, let's see, from 6,000 to 2,000, so, okay, call it 4,000 years in 11 chapters. And then you get, from chapter 12 to chapter 25, you get, you get 14 chapters all dealing with Abraham's lifetime, <laughs> all dealing with one guy in his generation. That's extraordinary. And then the rest of the book that centers on Isaac and Jacob, okay, uh, and Joseph. So uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a neat way to think your way through Genesis in this regard. All right, Genesis 12 highlights the exalted place that the descendants of Abraham have over the Gentiles. And this is key, all right? Genesis 11 is key with the Tower of Babel. How God disperses the the people across the earth? To me, that's a much better explanation than some kind of a goofy land bridge idea and a bunch of people walking across the Bering Strait and then filtering down through North and South America and all this other legends and whatnot. Again, you've got people trying to invent uh, a, a prehistoric past uh that to me uh is is unnecessary because the scripture says god scattered them abroad across the face of the earth and so how easy would it have been to to give them their languages and then teleport them to the various continents where he wanted them as it were um, so he's he's dividing up humanity into nations and that becomes key marriage family nations these are the the structures that god has given we call them the laws of divine establishment god established these principles for all of humanity uh saved or unsaved yeah when you operate on these principles god will bless you in in uh, in these capacities so um, nations, this is where family groups come together and in, in clans and in larger, uh, larger than clans, tribes and, and collections of tribes together in nations, all right? And nations come together as the top-level domain, <laughs> as the top-level organization. And nations are, are co-equal on this earth. See, that's the scriptural understanding. And that's baked into our nation's founding, by the way. When in the course of human events... Right in the in the Declaration of Independence, it was observed that a people were ready to assume their place among the among the what among the powers of the earth, okay, and to assume that station to which nature and nature's God entitled them. See, and so our the very founding document of our of our republic establishes the natural law that governs nations upon this earth. Whereas uh, internet, international organizations and, and all that is just uh, kind of an a echoing of Babel all over again. See, the tower thereof. All right. So the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." And so here we have a structure. This is the first iteration of the Abrahamic covenant. It's going to be expanded multiple times over the upcoming chapters, taking us all the way through uh, the life of Abraham, and then it gets confirmed to Isaac, it gets reconfirmed to Jacob. And these fundamental principles outline the, the, the premier earthly nation, which is Israel, the Jewish people. All right. And so God selected them, not because they deserved it, not because they were better I think it's because they maybe deserved it the least. He chooses the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. He grabbed the biggest, stiff-necked, uh, knuckle-headed, rebellious people he could think of, and that's the Jewish people. And said, "You're my covenant nation." He selected them to to be the the uh, keepers of Scripture and to be the the uh, uh, the. Uh, Christ the, the the humanity of Christ is going to be ber- uh, birthed through their uh, lineage as we understand it as scripture reveals it but there's so much that's here including families nations peoples okay I will make you a great nation and uh, understanding how God organizes these things becomes important um, so that's Genesis 12. And like I say, it's going to get expanded in chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 17. It gets expanded in, in various iterations. Um, Genesis 26 fixes Isaac over Ishmael as the heir of Abraham. You know, Abraham had a lot of children, not just Isaac and Ishmael, but he had other children through Keturah, his, his second wife. At the death of Sarah, he, uh, Abraham remarries, and he, remarries, he marries Keturah, has seven more babies, seven or eight more babies with Keturah. None of those children, although they're Abrahamic, none of those children are the heirs to the Abrahamic covenant. It's only Isaac. Isaac is the child that is selected where the covenant is confirmed with Isaac. And as you see in Genesis 26, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And so God in his prerogative here is selecting Isaac to the exclusion of Ishmael. I know the Quran changes that. <laughs> okay? And the Muslims try to magnify the, the descendants of Ishmael. But uh, the Quran was written 600 years after Christ, probably 800 years after Christ. And, uh, and you know, changing the story after the fact doesn't change the reality. God promised it to Isaac. Likewise, um, Genesis 28 fixes Jacob over Esau. They're twins, twin brothers. And Esau is the older one. But the older will serve the younger, is the prophecy that uh, Rachel was given, or Rebecca was given, while the twins were still in her womb. I am the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants. And so this is the third now, uh, or the second reconfirmation, but the third confirmation to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's why Yahweh Elohim is the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? That's clear. Jacob is the one who's renamed Israel, so you can shorten the title to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. It's the same thing as saying the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this, uh, this becomes important. In fact, if you don't get this, you're going to struggle through the rest of the Old Testament. Because right? it's all geared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The renaming of Jacob is Israel. The division of the, of the tribes. All right, Jacob has 12 sons. And each one of them is part of Israel. Each one of them is a tribe within the nation of Israel. And so uh, to understand the tribes, to understand the different parts, but understand they all fall under the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None of those tribes is excluded the way Ishmael is excluded, or Esau, or the, the sons of Ketur are excluded. By the way, who did Dinah marry? I don't think Dinah married. I think she was kept unmarried after the ugly incident there in the rape uh, of Dinah in in Shechem. Anyway, if she did marry later on, we're not told about Scripture doesn't say. So 12 sons, and each one uh, becomes a tribe. All right. Am I going too quickly? Are we following this? All right. This, by the way, this forms the basis of, of the Ralph Braun uh, approach to the, to the uh, walk through the Bible and how you think your way through. You think your way through the first 11 chapters just by chapter titles, and then you think your way through the rest of Genesis by the, the story that's told. And if you've never seen uh, one of the Ralph Braun uh, walk through the Bible demonstrations, they're, they're quite useful for uh, locking uh, this pattern into your thinking. Jacob is given the new name of Israel in Genesis 32:28. This is when he wrestles with uh, the Lord all night long and at a place called Peniel or Penuel. And uh, he wrestles with the Lord, and uh, he's given this new name. And he's one who has striven with God and with man. And uh, the title uh, Israel uh, carries with it that connotation. And uh, anyway, Genesis 32 demonstrates this. And so he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever, that, ever after. And when he calls Moses, he calls Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And that's, uh, that's what it is. And so none of the other tribes then have an, have an exclusive claim over Yahweh Elohim, all right? Because he's the God of Israel. Uh, Levi can't claim that he's, he's their God any more than Judah or Issachar or any of the other tribes. All right? And I think that's important also. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob guarantees the stewardship blessings upon Israel. And, um, in part, once you get this, and once you get how these tribes work, all right, how each tribe is broken down into clans, and the clans are broken down into families, and the families are broken down into houses. Um, but once you understand how these tribes operate, it's, it's, it's useful. And, and it's a difficult study often for Americans because we, we're not tribal. Um, I'm free to be born in Washington state and migrate to Texas and marry the prettiest girl in Texas. And that's fine. I don't need to get uh, the clan to approve. I don't need to get the tribal elders to approve. And, and we're not dealing with inheritance issues between tribes that can be problematic if, because the, the, the land is apportioned based on tribe. So uh, it's, it's awkward for us in the 20th or 21st century to, to try to think tribally uh, although in many parts of the world it's still very real it's still very ugly uh because tribal warfare is is some of the most ferocious warfare that's there but understanding the tribes is 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 key and understanding the tribes of Israel and how uh God is the God of all Israel becomes key in uh for the rest of the Old Testament by the way if uh, you remember in the uh Temptation of Moses, when uh, Moses is leading them out of Egypt and they're, they're through the Red Sea and they get the law, and they're wandering in the wilderness. God uh, tells Moses on a couple of occasions, uh, he says, "Back off now! I'm going to blast these people to smithereens and start over with you." All right, it's a, it was a hollow threat, really. If you if you study it, if you know it, and Moses knew it too. Um, and the reason why God issued that threat as a test of Moses' faith is Moses, to claim the doctrine, would fully understand that God cannot obliterate. If he started over with Moses, he'd be starting over with a Levite. He'd be starting over with one tribe out of 12. And that means he would be obliterating Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali and all the other tribes. All right can't do that because as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of those tribes have eternal promises. There are in fact prophecies that were uttered at the death of Jacob. Jacob issued prophecies for all of his sons. And so the threat to blast them all and start over with Moses wasn't going to work. Moses, uh, and, and Moses called him on it, see, at least twice. And then he failed on the... <laughs> Moses himself had had it up to here and said, all right, Lord, step, blast them. And that's when God said, no, Moses, not doing that. <laughs> All right, anyway, these, these, uh, these principles are, are, are key, and uh, to, to wrap our minds around them are important. Um, to side with the Palestinians over and against the Jewish people today is, is not only folly but is dangerous. Flat-out dangerous. All right? Let' get a microphone over to Doug, please. And uh, you know, they want to divide up the land, and they want to come up with a two-state solution in, in all of that, even though they already have a two-state solution. It's called Jordan on the uh, east side of the river. All right, yes, sir. So the twelve tribes are uh, represented today. Yes, the twelve tribes are represented today. Absolutely, don't people. There's no missing tribes. No That's missing right. tribes. The, the lost ten tribes of Israel and all the mythology associated with that. Now, um, the uh, uh, the lady in the temple was was, was from Asher. Uh, the, the tribes, God knows where they are. He knows where all of them are. And even in the first century, they weren't missing. The, the, the remnant of all the northern tribes had moved to the south anyway, that, uh, that feared God and wanted to be closer to the temple. So, uh, no, there are no missing tribes. Didn't you say something to the fact that uh, when they're gathered, there will be people who didn't know they were even Jewish, <laughs> possibly? Yes, I believe so. That's right. Uh, when Jesus regathers them from the four corners of the earth. Here, see, here's something else. In the Middle Ages, the Jewish people switched. They switched from a patrilineal reckoning to a matrilineal reckoning and 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 in so doing um there are a lot of people today that are considered Jewish because of their Jewish mother rather than their if they have a gentile father for example in the old testament in the scripture record all the the reckoning for for tribal inheritance is always patrilineal it's always from the father to the son from the father to the son and so it it is extraordinary today that 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 there could be an awful lot of people that are Jewish, or think they're Jewish and they're not, or don't think they're Jewish and they are. And uh, and, and so, yeah, thankfully we have the omniscient God who's going to sort that all out when he comes back at Second Advent, because um, all the Jewish records were destroyed when, when Titus destroyed the temple. So uh, all of their paperwork is gone. Uh, but thankfully, like I say, we've got an omniscient God that's going to sort all that out. Yeah, good question though. All right. The dispensation of Israel is a vital study for the understanding of the Alpha and Omega plan of God. The Jewish race had every advantage and benefit in contrast with the Gentiles. A prime advantage was the written word of God. So when you go to the book of Romans and you start to study the early chapters, in Romans 1, you've got a whole chapter that's given over to immoral depravity. And it describes all of the kind of sin that an immorally depraved person would get involved with. And then in Romans chapter 2, You've got descriptions of moral depravity and religious depravity, in which case, again, you've got a comprehensive list of all the sins, uh, pride and arrogance, and all the other sins that a morally depraved person or a religiously depraved person would be vulnerable to or, or participate in. And the, the conclusion, of course, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You get to Romans chapter 3, you realize everybody needs a Savior. The, the morally depraved need a Savior, the immorally depraved need a Savior. And just because my sin nature is on one, you know, one end of the spectrum compared to the other doesn't make me any better than that other end of the spectrum, all right? And we all need the same salvation because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But this rhetorical question begins chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? And, and Paul just lays it out here. He says, great in every respect, first of all. And in chapter 3, he never gets past point 1. all right and in fact in paul's typical rambling fashion he just kind of loses the the sense of it until you get later on in the in the book of romans all right he does finally get back around to some additional advantages additional benefits and in romans 9 10 and 11 spell out the fact that god's not done with israel that israel has a future but first of all they were entrusted with the oracles of god and that uh, it was the jewish people that were selected to write the hebrew scriptures which was the canon. We had a Hebrew canon, all right. Uh, all through from, from Genesis to Malachi, we have the Hebrew canon. And even extraordinarily enough, after 400 silent years, when God begins to write Scripture again, when God, be- when the Holy Spirit begins to speak through human authors to God-breathed Scripture, He does so in the Greek language, amazingly enough, all right. But He still selects Jewish authors. All right. He still selects Jewish authors, and and um, this, uh, by the way, this is all just cutting edge for me right now because uh, all my ministry, all my life, I've assumed, I've, I've gone with the assumption that uh, that the whole New Testament was written by Jews, except for one exception being Luke, that Luke was a Gentile. Luke was the brother of Titus. He was a Gentile. He was the author of Luke and Acts. Um, however, my newest book just arrived last Wednesday. I'm tearing into it, Uh, the Lucan authorship of Hebrews, by the way, which posits two main premises. First of all, premise A is Luke is the author of Hebrews, and with that, premise B is that Luke is a Jew that Luke is not Gentile, that he's Jewish, that he is priestly, he is a, a Levite of priestly lineage, and that he is uh, the author of Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. And it's it's a marvelous, it's, 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 uh, it's detailed, it's fastidious, it's, it's, it'll put you to sleep, you've got to read it in short stretches between cups of coffee to stay awake. But it is fascinating. Because I've been a Barnabas guy for a long, long time holding to the Barnabas authorship of Hebrews. Now I'm starting to think that uh, now we have a contender all right. in addition to Barnabas, who was also a Levite of Cyprian birth. But um, if Luke is, in fact, Jewish, then that means all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, has Jewish co-authors, has Jewish human instruments that the Holy Spirit would breathe through the Jewish instruments uh, in both the Hebrew canon and the Greek canon. And uh, that that's uh, an interesting concept, too. All right. Anyway, stay tuned. I'll, I'll have more to report on that as I, as I work my way through the book. But it's, uh, it is uh, interesting. So prime advantage was the written word of God. No part of the Bible was written during the dispensation of man or the Gentiles, as we talk about. Other prime advantages for Israel include their national adoption, national glory, eternal covenants, standard of perfection, temple holiness, prophetic hope, and patriarchal heritage. So when we get to chapter 9, we start to see additional advantages. And it's like, you know, six chapters later, Paul finally got back to his train of thought and goes, oh yeah, you know, I had a first of all, they never had a secondly or a thirdly. Uh, But when he talks about the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, all right? That's not the church adoption. That's not the adoption we have in Christ. It's a separate adoption, but it relates to the, the Jewish people as a nation contrasted to the Gentile nations around them. And the glory what nation on this earth had the Shekinah manifestation of God the Father to dwell within it? Only Israel. All right, They had the glory. And the covenants. What covenants were these other nations given? They were given land boundaries, they were given times, but they were not given covenants as Israel was given covenants. The giving of the law, that was to Israel. The temple service, Israel. The promises, Israel. Whose are the fathers, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Again, whose are the fathers? That's amazing. The founding, you know, we talk about the founding fathers. We can study the founding fathers of the United States, and that's fun. It's worth it. I like it. Um, you know, we can study George Washington or uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin. I mean, we can study founding fathers, but when we do so, we're studying secular history. When Israel studies their founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're studying scripture. <laughs> so their history is scripture. And uh, in that, very unique, in that. From whom is the Christ according to the flesh. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he was born of a Jewish mother, a Jewish virgin, and then that, that's key, all right? From whom is the Christ according to the flesh. You talk about the greatest advantage of all, how about birthing the Christ? There uh, there it is. The greatest advantage of Israel is the birth of the Christ, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed all right genesis 12 3 by the way in you all the families of the earth will be blessed um, I, I know it's common to think of this as being fulfilled in the church age but it is not it is fulfilled in the millennial kingdom of jesus christ and then in the fullness of time and the new earth the uh, uh the blessings that we have in christ are separate from anything co- uh, connected to the abrahamic covenant the blessings we have in christ are because we're in christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And it has nothing to do with the Abrahamic blessing to the nations. The Abrahamic blessing to the nations will take place, as I say, starting in the millennium and then throughout the thousand generations of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? And that's uh, a point I like to make um, not really a point I would fight over, but I, I would I would make that point with folks that try to find a church age fulfillment in Genesis twelve three. Because I think that opens the door to more problems than it's worth. Again, it's not even true. All right. Uh, we are blessed in Christ. We are not Gentiles that are blessed by an Abrahamic covenant. That makes sense? Any questions on that? All right. See, and, and, and the only reason why. I think that confusion is there is because folks are reading uh, Ephesians or Colossians. They're in the New Testament. They're seeing how uh, in, in, in the body of Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. The dividing wall of separation has been broken down and we're now one body in Christ. And so uh, I think a whole lot of, you know, happy Gentiles, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gentile dog. Uh, a whole bunch of happy Gentiles are excited to be blessed uh, when we weren't necessarily blessed that way in the Old Testament um, but it's not the Genesis 12:3 blessing that we have in Christ. We have the Ephesians 1-3 blessing of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And uh, we want to we uh, not lose sight of that. All right, the covenants are matters for intermediate and advanced doctrinal studies. And so in basics, I don't take you through it. We give just the opening framework as far as the Abrahamic covenant is concerned, uh, but we don't go into into more excruciating details. In my thinking, it's beyond the basics to go into that. All right, and uh, I felt it was necessary that a brand new believer in his first, you know, year or whatever of, of of getting grounded in doctrine does not need to know all those intricacies of all those covenants. Okay, he'll pick that up later, in my thinking. Um, but Abrahamic covenant is centered in three things and we call them land, seed and blessing. All right. Land, seed and blessing. And, uh, and a lot of folks that teach Abrahamic covenant teach it on this basis. The land is literal land, real estate in the Middle East, not heaven. Okay. Seed, literal babies, father to son, father to son in 12 tribes for the Jewish people and blessing. And the eternal blessing that that uh, will be Israel's uh, for all eternity. All right, land, seed, and blessing. Each of those covenants is further expanded. The land portion has more information that comes in Deuteronomy, and the land portion is amplified. Okay, and uh, I prefer to co- well. For a long, long time, it was called the Palestinian Covenant. Okay, if you have an old Schofield study Bible, you'll see it in the in the notes under the Palestinian Covenant. A lot of authors have have kept that same terminology. Um, Lately, I think evangelicals are getting away from that because it, it's, it's too charged in, in terms of, of the Yasser Arafat terrorists, all right? The Palestinian, the so-called Palestinian people today, all right? So to, to clear matters up, the, the Yasser Arafat terrorists that are called Palestinians today have nothing to do with the land portion of the Abrahamic Covenant, the land portion of the Abrahamic covenant as amplified by Moses in Deuteronomy. Uh, today it's being called more of the land covenant, uh, just as a, as a label, calling it the land covenant. Seed. Seed gets expanded in the Davidic covenant. And so when you find the seed uh, portion expanded, it's promised a descendant of David that would, fo- that would provide the seed blessings. And, and we taught it in, in Galatians. Galatians uh, makes very clear that the seed singular is Christ. Uh, the seed, plural, is the descendants, but the seed, singular, is Christ. And so we have the unfolding of it there. And then blessing. Blessing has its amplification where? The new covenant of Jeremiah 31. All right, Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant totally expands the blessing promised to Abraham and gives us, by the way, the millennial fulfillment for the blessing of, of Genesis 12:3, Not the church age, the millennium in the uh, the new covenant of Jeremiah thirty one thirty one, So, covenants are matters for intermediate and advanced doctrinal studies. As far as basic doctrinal studies is concerned, two observations will be made. First, the Adamic and Noahic covenants were enacted by God during the dispensation of the Gentiles. Okay. Abrahamic, the Adamic covenant and uh, the Noahic covenant. Remember the rainbow is not going to flood the earth again. Um, Abrahamic palestinic there's that label davidic and new okay these were enacted by god during the dispensation of israel what what covenants were enacted with the church what covenants do we find in the in the epistles what covenants do we find between yahweh and the bride of christ none okay all of the covenants are old testament and and, um, from abraham onward they're applied to israel All right. Secondly, the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Romans 9:24, Ephesians 2:16 and 18. Our understanding of the covenants reflects that. All right. Uh, Romans 9:24, even us, whom he also called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So we are both Jews and Gentiles that are called into the body of Christ. Ephesians 2:16, my reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Verse 18 for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So in the body of Christ in the church age we are both Jew and Gentile according to these passages, Romans 9:24 and Ephesians 2:16 and 18. On the other hand, I have more than two hands. Okay, I have two hands here. All right. On the other hand, the church is made up of neither Jews nor Gentiles. And so we look at these passages. We look at Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Or how about Ephesians 3.15? You go from Ephesians 2 to Ephesians 3. From whom every family uh, in, in heaven and on earth derives its name. All right. So we have the language of both and we have the language of neither. And I think that's uh that's key. Our re- our relationship to the covenants must also reflect that. You know, if the Abrahamic covenant is to the Jews and through the Jews is to bless the Gentiles, then how does it apply to us who are neither Jew nor Gentile? Right? The Davidic covenant the new covenant, the land covenant, they're all to the Jews. Through the Jews then to bless the Gentiles. It actually excludes the Gentiles. Remember we, we saw to whom belongs the covenants? The covenants didn't belong to the Gentiles. They belong to the Jews. So how, how do we abscond with the new covenant? All right, I mean, I turn to Matthew and it says the New Testament. Okay? Bad labels. We want to be clear all right? The church is not a party to the new covenant. We're ministers of the new covenant in Christ. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And that new covenant will be made with Israel in the millennial kingdom, not with us, not here, not now, not today. Third thing we want to keep in mind if we're going to study the covenants, and again, we reserve most of this for, for later studies, intermediate and advanced studies, not basics. But thirdly, we want to understand the distinctions between unconditional And conditional. The idea that an unconditional and eternal covenant cannot be broken or superseded. That's huge. Okay? Mosaic law was conditional. Abrahamic covenants, unconditional. Palestinian, uh, the land covenant is conditional as far as their enjoyment of the land is concerned. Davidic covenant, unconditional. Uh, New covenant, unconditional. See? Unconditional and eternal covenants cannot be broken or superseded. You can't redirect it to somebody else and say you're still keeping it. <laughs> right? How insane is that? You know, and, and I know I, I preach about this a lot. Maybe it's a hobby horse or maybe it's a pet peeve. Right? I don't know. But I preach about it a lot. I want us to be clear. I don't want any of my flock to be to be sucked up into the, the bad theology of replacement theology. All right? Is it, it is I think it's it's divisive. I think it's dangerous. It's tragically um, it's evil if you think your way through it. The idea that God can just be a liar and change his mind and dump his plan for Israel and, and, and replace Israel with the church, what is that? Because they're unconditional eternal covenant promises. And, and, and fundamentally, the idea behind replacement theology is so flawed, what's to stop him from dumping us? <laughs> and say, looking at the church and saying, well, you guys are a bunch of losers too, just like the Jews were a bunch of losers. I'm going to scrap you guys and start over with plan C and go from plan A to plan B to plan C to whatever. God doesn't do that. The church is has always been a part of plan A. Just because it was a mystery and unrevealed does not mean that God uh, didn't know about it. It was a part of plan A from the from the eternal life conference, from the divine decrees. The church is just as much a part of plan A as Israel is a part of plan A. God only has a plan A. <laughs> okay? So the idea that, that God can be a liar, or that he can take promises that were meant as literal promises to David and then lie to David and and reassign those spiritually to to the church is is anathema. God cannot be that kind of, we wouldn't accept that. And as human beings, we wouldn't accept that. Galatians says, you know, if it's something that a human being wouldn't do, why do we say God's going to do that? God's not going to do that. All right. (laughs) Sometimes I use marriage as a, as a illustration. Scripture uses marriage as an illustration, so I can use marriage as an illustration, especially if you're engaged to get married. You know, you're going you're gonna to stand before God and men, and you're going you're gonna to speak vows to your, to your wife or to your husband, and you're going to speak these vows till death us do part, right? Now, you can't then transfer those vows to somebody else <laughs> and claim that you're still keeping those vows, saying well gee sorry sweetie but i'm transferring your vow my, you know over to to this person well that makes you a liar that makes you a vow breaker that makes you faithless in your in your covenant god wouldn't do that we wouldn't do that and so it's it's just anathema in my mind all right When we transition from Israel to the church, I think it's key. Now keep in mind, on this diagram, it's useful to me. I, I like the way we drew it up. We kept that little sliver of pink across the top uh, of the church simply to show the continuity, to show that the church is a parenthesis. The dispensation of the church is an intercalation. It is, a, it is an age that is, that is inserted, uh, but Israel's not done. Israel will resume. Israel is presently on hold. Okay, like calling an insurance company and asking about next year's insurance rates, and you get put on hold. And you're on hold for a dispensation, it seems like, a very long period of time while you're listening to that elevator music. And and that's what Israel, Israel's on hold. They've been on hold for 2,000 years. But he's not done with them. He will resume that plan for Israel as soon as the church is raptured out. So I like the diagram uh, that, that that illustrates that. In that way, all right, Matthew 16 verses 18 and 19. This is the the great Roman Catholic mythology that makes Peter the, the first pope. okay? Uh, the Bible doesn't do that, but the, the Roman Catholics do. Um, Peter is, is the, not uh, the rock. It's Peter's confession that's being spoken of here. Set that aside for the moment. I will build my church, future tense. I will build my church. As Jesus Christ speaks these words in uh, 33 AD or 32 AD, approaching the cross, all right? um, This is probably in the fall of 32 as he's speaking this. um, I will build my church in the future tense. It does not exist. It's not on earth at the time Jesus is promising this. It is a future tense. Uh, Matthew 16 pinpoints the establishment of the church as a future work of Jesus Christ. This passage also stipulates the activity of the church to be both earthly and heavenly, engaging both the physical and the spiritual realms of creation. Israel was an earthly nation. Their neighbors were earthly. Their conflict was earthly. We are a heavenly citizenship. And we function in the earth, in, obviously we're still on earth, but where our kingdom is not of this earth, our, our uh, attention is focused on the things above. When he says here, uh, the gates of Hades will not overpower it, we realize there's a spiritual dynamic that is at war, at war against the body of Christ. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And, and to exegete that text is, is fun and it's It's critical. But it shows that dynamic between heaven and earth. And that's a common reality for us in the church age. It was not, not the case in, in the Old Testament, not the case for Israel. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. There's a dynamic. The church is to be both earthly and heavenly. Our activity is engaging both the physical and spiritual realms of creation. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and powers. That's why we're given armor. That's why we operate in, in the, the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm of existence. Alright, I guess I've kind of transitioned now from Israel to the church. Do we have any questions on Israel? The stewardship of Israel? Um, I don't go into it in the basics notebook, but the dispensation of Israel, I, I break down into different ages the age of promise, the age of law. They have two pending ages, still future, the age of tribulation and the millennial uh, reign of Jesus Christ. But the age of promise from Abraham to Moses, the age of law from Moses to Christ. Uh, I believe that the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ consisted of its unique age for the three and a half years. Something greater than the law was here. And Israel operated under conditions that were unique to that time frame. Uh, but there was no change of stewardship. We talked about this last week. A stewardship is a stewardship and an age is an age. Okay? And there's no time component to a stewardship. The ages within the stewardships have unique circumstances. Promise was different than law. The circumstances were different, the expectations were different, the accountability was different, uh, how they operated was different. The stewardship was still vested in the Jewish people. And then from law to the age of of, uh, incarnation, it's still a Jewish stewardship. Tribulation is still a Jewish stewardship. Millennial kingdom is still a Jewish stewardship. With Jesus Christ on the throne, it's still a Jewish stewardship in the millennial kingdom as Israel will minister to the Gentile people. All right, do we have any questions then on the dispensation of Israel? We know more about Israel because we've got their scriptures, <laughs> okay? We have the Hebrew canon, which gets us into the church. And I have six minutes to teach the entirety of the church age. That's not going to happen, all right? Um, but as we, as we transition now into the church, Jesus promised it as a future thing, a future created thing. Uh, Ephesians tells us it's a mystery. The uh, stewardship of God's grace. It was purposely hidden through former dispensations. God knew about it. He knew that, that Israel would be put on hold. He knew that a body of, of the body of Christ was going to be called out. He knew that a bride was going to be prepared for his son. But he didn't reveal it to anyone. Not to the Gentiles, not to the Jews, not to the angels, certainly, especially to the angels. So much of what God keeps hidden away is hidden away from Satan and, and uh, the attacks that he can bring on things. Ephesians 3 1 through 12 expounds expounds the nature of the mystery of Christ, how the church was purposely purposefully hidden throughout former dispensations. Other passages to support this include Romans 16, Hebrews 11, 1 Peter 1. Those are useful. You can add those into the mix. You can can take the the content of those verses and add them. But the the primary text you want to start with is the biggie. The the primary text you want to start with is here in Ephesians 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed, and you have, this is a, an intensified first-class condition, which is true. It's very true. They know it's true. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship, that's oikonomia, dispensation, economy, stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. All right. Yes, there was grace in the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. David understood grace. There's a ton of grace in the Old Testament. But ours is a stewardship of grace. The body of Christ operates in a grace economy. The stewardship of grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Mystery doctrine is not Bible codes whereby some some guy writes a book and makes a lot of money trying to convince somebody that he's smart enough to explain something. that It's not Bible codes, okay? Musterion speaks to that which God reserved until such time as he unfolded it, all right? And it's not like an Agatha Christie novel. It's not Sherlock Holmes where we're trying to solve a a whodunit, okay? It's, It's mystery. It's unfolded when God reveals it. By the time you know it even exists, God's explaining it to you. (laughs) <laughs> okay. By the time the church exists, God is unveiling it here in the revelation to the apostles and the prophets, the foundation of the church through the the New Testament scriptures. All right. I'm going to just wrap up here and we'll we'll conclude the um By revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. In other words, New Testament Scripture. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body. Notice, not fellow recipients of the Abrahamic Covenant, not fellow recipients of the Davidic Covenant, not fellow recipients of the New Covenant, but fellow heirs, fellow members of the body. That's the body of Christ. Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All right? It's a whole new thing not revealed in the Old Testament, not prophesied, not anticipated, but reserved as a mystery of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Unfathomable. When you think of things which eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. Whoever would have dreamed of a, of a whole new creation. You know? uh, human thought can't even comprehend. Because we have thinking that, that centers on A and not A. Right? Jew and Gentile. Gentile is not Jew. Okay? And so if you have A and not A, if we have Jew and Gentile, that's everything. What more can you add to that? Well, you can have a whole new creation. You can have the miracle of the body of Christ that is both Jew and Gentile, which is neither Jew nor Gentile, which is a new creation. And in the new creation that we have in Christ, we have a tremendous blessing that is our church age. All right? And we're going to pick up on this next week. This is where we'll start. We'll start with this new creation in Christ. A final question then for Doug keeping our runner running tonight. I like that. Thank you, sir. Uh, Do you think that the uh, Jews, one of the Do I think what? Well, the Jews' arrogance, I mean the arrogance of of not believing in Jesus as the Messiah or becoming a Christian they're going to lose their blessings Uh, Ah, that they think they have as being a Jew. Remind me next week. I'll, I'll begin with that next week. Okay, all right, because Fruchtenbaum teaches differently than I do and, and differently than a lot of people do. Uh, so we'll have to touch on that next week. okay all right thanks. Thank you, Father for tonight for your truth, for your faithfulness and uh, Father. I pray that we'd have a handle on these principles. Uh, We want to be able to teach them to a brand new believer that just got saved this morning, to show them their place in the body of Christ, to show them their place in the bride, to demonstrate what we have been given, Father, because to whom much is given shall much be required. And Father, I pray that uh, these these blessings, the blessings of Ephesians, the blessings of, of the mystery doctrine of the New Testament Um, these ought to be the the foundational uh, doctrines that any brand new believer learns. And so open our eyes to these principles, help us to understand the overall plan from Alpha to Omega, show us where our place is so that we can operate effectively in the body of Christ. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.